Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Hello, this is Victor Hansen on the Victor Hansen podcast. Our usual host, Jack Fowler and Sammy Wink are not here and I'm going solo with an old friend of mine who, in a role reversal, who used to host the classicist for the Hoover Institution. Troy Sinek is now a guest of the <laughs> former, ho- uh, his former uh, client, let's say. And we're so happy to have Troy. He's the author most recently of, he's written a lot of articles in almost all the major journals, and he's done so much in his life. He's been, as you probably remember, he was a speechwriter for George W. Bush. He's been in journalism, public policy. I got to know Troy, as I said, it wasn't just my podcast that he hosted. He did a number of podcasts and public for the Hoover Institution. And I also have a connection. My daughter, Susanna, went to Pepperdine University's public policy program, master's degree, as Troy did. He's the co-founder of Kite and Key, what we're going to talk about. But right now, he's with us. And we're going to, as an intro to this new and wonderful book, A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Rover Cleveland, I want to introduce everybody to Troy Sinek, and we'll get right to Kite and Key, Troy. Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me, Victor. It is a little strange to be on this side of the <laughs> microphone with you. So I don't know how well I'm going to be able to sustain it. If 20 minutes in, I just start asking you questions about Thucydides. That's just the muscle memory kicking in. <laughs> well, I mean, if it, when I stopped the Hoover because uh, we went to another platform, uh, a lot of people said, you're not going to make it because Troy's not interviewing you anymore. <laughs> I mean, that might be true. Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, They've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com. 
tnusa.com slash Victor. tnusa.com slash Victor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors Fresh, Never Frozen Meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash VICTOR50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. What is Kite and Key? Kite and Key, it's an online platform. It's a, a channel is the best way to think of us. So you can find what we do on any of the major social media platforms on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, and on our own website, which is kiteandkeymedia.com. Uh, Kite and Key grows out of the think tank experience I've had that you were referencing earlier. I did all that work with you and others at, at Hoover for years. I was a vice president of the Manhattan Institute for yeah, four or five years. And um, my co-founder and I, a woman named Vanessa Mendoza, who was another executive at the Manhattan Institute with me, became very frustrated when we were at MI because you know this as well as anybody, when you're in a think tank, the way that you define success oftentimes is you have a scholar has a good meeting with a policymaker or a scholar has a piece in the Wall Street Journal. And those are you know good and important and significant things. But the delta that we kept seeing was that you'd have a day where something like that happened. And then you'd go home with friends and family who were normal, you know, and not immersed in the world of public policy or even politics the way that we were. And uh, all those things were imperceptible to them. But it didn't mean that they weren't thinking about public policy or politics. They were getting most of their information, however, in little bits and drive-bys on the Twitters and Facebooks and Instagrams of the world. And a lot of that material that they got, no surprise to probably anybody listening to this, is wrong, is dead wrong in many cases. And so what we wanted to do was to create a media company where we could produce video. And our primary product is sort of six, seven minute videos. You could call them uh, explainers. That's not quite right, but that's the term people generally use for these kinds of things, where we wanted to have sort of the entertainment value of the brands that do that kind of work. The stuff is is fast paced. It's a little funny. It's meant to be accessible to a layperson. But we wanted to have it steeped in sort of the real world research that comes out of think tanks or universities. Uh, in many cases, there's a lot of government research actually that's that's quite good that just gets ignored because it comes from the government. So for instance, just to give you one example, everything that you think you know about how renewable energy wind and solar will change the world, the thing that you can hear unquestioned in the mainstream media mm -hmm. ad nauseum is easily disproved by almost everything that is put out by the U.S. Energy Information Administration. Wow. When you actually look at the math that's involved in these things, you just realize that those things may have their place, but you're never going to be able to run an advanced economy. So let me walk you through it then, Troy. So say that I'm an entity, whether public or private, and I have this data or this exegesis that shows let's say take a i'm just going to take a controversial issue the the origins of COVID, and i have this idea that it's 
it did leak from the Wuhan lab. So then I want that message out. I've written things. So I go to you guys and what do you do next? Or is, is that a good example? So it, it's a very good question, partially because the way that we do it, and this is worth explaining, doesn't look exactly like that uh, on a couple of grounds. One is uh, the subject matter. So what you just, the hypothetical yeah. you just proposed with COVID, that is one that we probably wouldn't do, not because you, we're not interested in it, but because we even though we are both deep in the public policy world yeah. and we have a group of policy scholars sort of around us that we always go to to fact check everything to make sure we're not being irresponsible, we know what our own sort of limitations on this stuff are. So if something is is that new and still that in dispute where we don't feel like we have a good sense of how to referee it, then we probably we probably either wouldn't produce it or we would produce something that showed both sides of the argument. Just so would you, we, how about say the viability of social security trust fund or something like that? Right. Now that's something we have done videos, for instance, about what the economics look like around entitlements uh -huh. and the national debt. But the one other point that's probably worth making, going back to the scenario that you floated, is that we sort of treat the content selection process and the production process as if we're the editorial board of a newspaper, by which I mean, we don't take clients. No, Nobody pays us to do this. Think tanks don't come to us and say, we've got this paper, we'd like for you to do a, a video. We sort of look for the best material that's out there. And we always, you know, we welcome people sending us stuff so that we, you know, might take an interest in a topic that we otherwise wouldn't have done. But we, one of the reasons that we think that that's important First of all, is we want to maintain some distance from the actual material itself to, to kind of take a more objective approach to it. But also we felt like it was actually important that think tanks and the research institutions of the world not have their fingers too deep in this process because our experience was having been think tank executives, you can't really do this stuff correctly from within a think tank. You know, most most yeah. scholars are so concerned with everything being so precise, which sometimes means unintelligible for a layperson, right? That they they wouldn't be comfortable with what you've got to do to convey it in six or seven minutes. How, have... how do you get so how how large are do you have a staff of technicians, filmmakers, scriptwriters, researchers? Yeah, we we have a we have about eight or nine um, full time staffers and about eight or nine contractors which are mostly the the mm. producers who are are making the videos and we do all of the research and writing ourselves internally and then as i said for pretty much everything we do uh, we have a scholar that we will turn to after we've gone through all the research to make sure because it is important to us even though this has to be accessible that it be precise you know there is such a thing as as sort of responsible uh layperson's content right you you don't want to make it so um, so accessible that you're sort of losing the precision. So for instance, if we were making a video on World War II, we'd call you up, Victor. If we're, if we're doing an economics video, we'll call one of our economists because we want to make sure that we are giving people, even though it's this short sort of Reader's Digest version of it, six or seven minutes, that they are getting really sort of authoritative content and, and that's and why you, when we publish it we also we will list all the sources as if it's a, a research article so you can go back and look at all the papers and research that our material comes from so your revenue comes from this your your status as a nonprofit you operate as a nonprofit and you're you get grants and and gifts and things like that that that's, that's right funding that's right we're a we're a nonprofit organization we talked about this back when we were starting uh, the organization about whether it made sense to be a for-profit or a non-profit. And we just decided it has to be non-profit because the incentives are so skewed in the current media environment. If you go for-profit um, that you are inevitably going to be getting into sort yeah. of clickbait type stuff that is not really reconcilable with the kind of serious sort of public policy work that we're doing. And yeah, so we are, we are funded entirely by 
charitable organizations, foundations, and individuals. We don't we don't take any corporate money, uh, just because we don't even want the suggestion that, that that's an influence on the content. Wouldn't be if we took it, but we just decide not to take yeah. it in the first place. And how do you final question? How do you disseminate? Do you go to YouTube or you go social media? How do you disseminate your product? Yeah, people can find us at kiteandkeymedia.com, but they can also see everything that we put out on Twitter, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on a number of different platforms. And they can also sign up on our website so that they're getting uh, every new video as soon as they come out. We only put out one thing a week and we really, we don't pollute people's inboxes. All you'll get is the new video. You don't get you know ads on top of that or us trying to get you to sign up and give money at some other level. It's just the content. You get criticism from either one of the two parties when you put something out or do you get their public relations people call you and say, hey, Troy, come on now. <laughs> or do they just are, are you kind of sort of above that? They just say, you know you, what, that's their job. You know, what's funny. I, I think a lot of people don't know what to do with us. And mm -hmm. it, it's because we really thought it was important, especially in the media environment now, the way that it is to make all of these videos just about the one specific policy issue or the one specific, in some cases, historical issue, whatever it is that we're covering, and to not do um, the electoral politics implications, to not even do the sort of political philosophy implications, because our theory has been, and this doesn't mean that we're not being squishy or, or even particularly you know, moderate on a lot of these things. We're saying what we believe, but our theory has always been that the more partisan or ideological signals that you send, the more you are giving people off ramps to not mm -hmm. consider the argument seriously when you're talking about public policy. Because I was very influenced when we were putting this together by a conversation that I had at the Manhattan Institute, which was I used to have an office next door to MI's director of healthcare policy. And I remember talking to him one Monday morning. He had come back in from a, he had participated in a debate over the weekend. And he had been debating, um, I'm forgetting which of the Emanuel brothers is the healthcare one, Zeke Emanuel, I think. And yeah. they had they had been in a forum debating healthcare, guy on the right, guy on the left. And Zeke said to him after they were done, he said, you know, it's funny. Everybody comes here for the blood sport and they don't realize that if you lock the two of us in a room, we'd agree on about 80 percent. Of healthcare policy. Now, the other 20% obviously is incredibly important, right? And those differences are really where the fork in the road arrives for mm -hmm. public policy. But I think for lay people, a lot of times, they think it is entirely polarized. And so a lot of what we're trying to do is to sort of expose the 70, 80% on any given issue that if you're familiar with the research, you sort of take as a given. Because has that tends to, as I said with the uh, example with energy, you know, this is a good example of this, that tends to get lost a lot of times in the mainstream media. And a lot of, if you just were looking at mainstream media coverage on a lot of issues, you could, you would end up walking away with something that is, you know, oftentimes 180 degrees from what the policy people actually think is true. That's interesting. I remember he was uh, Ezekiel Emanuel for a while. He was very, um, just to pick up that little anecdote vocal about uh, in the COVID debate. But what I was curious about, you remember he wrote that op-ed that he said at 75, he really would refuse all medical uh, care because he didn't believe in prolonging life after 75. Yes, and, that it'd be for the good of society that he yes, just drop I think, off. And... I think he's in his mid-60s, so he's going to get close to gut check time pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I remind, that's remind me of Euripides Alcestis. Kind of the theme is that... Uh, her father-in-law can live if he can find one person to, to take his place with Thanatos as a point, you know, with a grim reaper. And he asked people and his own son won't do it. But Alcestis, who's no blood relations willing to it, one of the characters says, do you think I wake up every morning? I don't like the feel of sun on my cheeks. <laughs> You're not the only one. It's, it's very yeah. good. It's, it's on that theme. Uh, so you, you've just come out with this uh, wonderful book on somebody that has not got a lot of uh, attention, although he's going to be more relevant as we see Donald Trump to try to, what, emulate Grover yeah. Cleveland. 
in the sense that, is this true? He is the only person who has held the presidency in non-consecutive terms, and he's the only person other than FDR who won the popular vote three times? Yeah, the um, first the first one is true, and then on the on the second one, it's him and FDR uh, and Andrew Jackson Andrew as well. Jackson, yes. twenty four. But yeah, it is a small club that Grover Cleveland belongs to. So, and then you, I, I, to frame your question, he's interesting because he he's in this period from Buchanan all the way to Teddy Roosevelt, that era, Woodrow Wilson area, where Democrats, because of the Civil War, just didn't win on the national level. Is that not right? That whole half century of Republican dominance. That Carl That's right. Wolf, Carl Wolf keeps mentioning couldn't, should happen again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's a, a period. Grover Cleveland is first elected in 1884, and he, he loses in 1888, despite winning the popular vote, and then comes back to office with the 1892 election. And to put that in context, what you're referring to here, he's the only Democrat elected president between James Buchanan in 1856 and Woodrow Wilson in 1912. So as I say in the book, this is the equivalent of in the time span between John F. Kennedy and Donald Trump, yeah. only having one president elected from one of the two major political parties. And he's kind of a, you point out again and again, he's... Um... I, I remember in high school, like they had that term for him, bourbon Democrat. He wasn't the populist William Jenny Bryan Democrat, was he? No, Cleveland is really the last sort of Jeffersonian classical liberal Democrat, and which is to say that he is a he's a constitutionalist. He believes in limited government. He is more laissez-faire than not on economics, though not absolutely. He is, um, he's for the most part, a, a non-interventionist in foreign affairs. I, I use that, I use that term uh, advisedly because he's 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 not an isolationist either. But he has a he has a very narrow sense of sort of what America's role is in the world, and um, he's a great fiscal conservative. He is he, somebody. He's a who, he's a gold Democrat, not a silver, huh? Is he's he, a gold. What was he? He's a, a gold Democrat and not a silver Democrat. He looks with great trepidation at the populist movement within the Democratic Party that is all in on silver because he sees the inflationary intent of this as something that has the potential to really sort of blow up the American economy in a lot of respects. So as I say early in the book, it is easy to look at him and say that though he is a Democrat of the late 19th century – he looks more like a modern Republican. And that, to, to be sure, is true. Um, I think you always have to be careful with those sort of intergenerational comparisons because it is not a perfect fit by any stretch. I mean, this is a guy who cares a lot about the economic inequality of the era. This is a guy who looks, despite his reputation to the contrary, looks fairly favorable on unions. These are unions that are not making the same kind of uh, asks in terms of public power in his era that they necessarily are now. But it was the case, you know, as time progressed and um, figures like Woodrow Wilson came to the fore in the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party became more of a progressive party that Cleveland, even by the early 20th century, not too far removed from his presidency, is really a figure uh, that is regarded more positively by Republicans than by Democrats. So you can sort of see the next president who bears a fair amount of similarity to, to Grover Cleveland really is a, a Taft and then a Harding or a Coolidge. Mm -hmm. It's it's not Wilson. It's not FDR. Did, uh, you, one of the themes that you made, um, and I was curious about this, so you say he might not have had one of the greater presidencies or not a, maybe a great presidency, but he was a great president. In other words, his moral character or his intellectual or spiritual courage was such that when we think of him, we think of Cleveland, the man rather than Cleveland, the administration. Is that is that one of your arguments? And if it is, are they separable like that? I mean, I was thinking when I read that and I saw that theme that was very well argued 
I was thinking just offhand, if you look at a Gerald Ford or a Jimmy Carter, they were far probably more moral moral people in traditional terms than, say, a Donald Trump. But if you look at the actual efficacy of the Trump administration versus the Ford or Carter, you can make the right. argument that Trump. So how do you how do you handle that dichotomy? It It is related to that insofar as I, I think that the moral character he brought to the office is a significant part of how we ought to judge him. But it's a little more complicated than that, too, partially because, as I explained in the pages that follow that statement in the yeah. book, part of it is I, I have this obsession, Victor, probably an unhealthy obsession mm-hmm. with with the whole sport of presidential rankings. And presidential rankings drive me crazy. And the reason that they drive me crazy is because the criteria that are normally used for them make perfect sense for about the last hundred years of the presidency or so, when the presidency has expanded in power mm-hmm. and reach. And in and in some ways, really in its significant in its significance in Americans' conception of government. I mean, I don't think it's actually a particularly controversial statement to say that we now sort of regard the president as the central figure in American government in a way that just wasn't quite understood the same in, in the 19th century or the that's, 18th that's, um, that's That's even sort of psychological, spiritually, in a, yeah. besides the fact of the vast expansion materially of his powers. That That's right. And so part of my argument in the book is that the things that we use to judge modern presidents, these sort of abstruse concepts like vision or their foreign policy leadership or how much legislation they're shepherding through Congress sort of makes sense for about the last 100, 110, 120 years. And then prior to that, they sort of work if you're talking about a landmark figure in a moment of national crisis like a Lincoln or Washington, who is sui generis because you know, only one person gets to be first. But for presidents who are presiding over somewhat more prosaic times, I mean, Cleveland did not have easy sailing, but that you have to judge them by slightly different standards, by standards that are more in line with how they understood the office and how the American public understood the office at the time. And Cleveland has a very much sort of a negative conception of the presidency, by which I mean he sort of defines himself. He really takes the verb preside seriously in the in the presidency. He really thinks of himself as a sort of national ombudsman in a way whose job is to keep Congress at bay, you know, keep other forces in American politics from being too grasping, too venal. So the most famous example of this, one of the few things that some people, at least history buffs, may know about Grover Cleveland is he occasions – a thoroughgoing revolution, really, in the presidential use of the veto power. So in in his first term, he vetoes 414 pieces of legislation, which is double that of all 21 presidents before him combined, (laughs) and then comes back in his second term, even when he's got his fellow Democrats in the majority for half of that term in Congress, he still vetoes over the course of that second term, 170 pieces of legislation. So all in, 584. The only person who ever surpasses that is FDR, and it takes FDR 12 years to do that. Wow. So Cleveland is really defined in a lot of respects by the things that he is is unwilling to do. He He is unwilling to see taxpayers, in his mind, taken for a ride with these expenditures from Congress that he thinks are unjustified and that he says in many cases are sort of tantamount to theft. It really matters when you're taking this out of an average citizen's pocket. You know, he is he is unwilling to see the American financial system upended because of this silver mania that who knows who knows where it'll go. It could break this thing that has served us pretty well up to this point. He is unwilling in his second term to see the U.S annex Hawaii because he feels that the circumstances under which Hawaii has sort of come into the American orbit are irreconcilable with the American character because the ambassador there under the Harrison administration had more or less been party to a coup. So uh, part of what I mean by that is that he is in many ways 
defined by the things that he doesn't do. And what and what makes those things remarkable is that he is really willing to stick out his chin and take a lot of political hits that lesser politicians might not be willing to. And I, I would say just in closing on this, because I'm, I'm going on, but the book is not hagiographic. I mean, I, I criticize him in many places for this precise, precisely the same kind of of stubbornness. But one of the reasons I thought that the book was important to write is because I think if you asked a lot of American lay people off the street, what do you want in a president? They might describe something that looks close to Grover Cleveland, self-made man, modest background, rises through politics. I mean, he goes from a relatively unknown lawyer in Buffalo in the year 1881 to president of the United States in 1884, three years Sheerly on the basis of his reputation for integrity and incorruptibility. And what I wanted people to have to wrestle with is to understand, well, we we had a figure like this at one point in American history. And turns out he was he was deeply polarizing. And it turns out that when somebody is that principled, uh, it oftentimes comes at their political expense. You lose a lot when you lose these little sort of lubrications that make political life worked. And that's the reason I think he's such an interesting figure is because that kind of devotion to first principle is really expressed maybe more clearly in his presidency than almost any other. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. One of the things I, I took from it, you'd think that he, when I started, I had this impression, you know, that unlike William Jennings Bryan, that never won. I mean, he was a Democratic candidate that won three popular votes, and therefore he bridged the gap, which is sort of true. But I think what you were arguing, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that while he was trying to steer or tack toward the center, and he had as much Republican support at times as Democrat, his his character was off-putting, not self-righteous or sanctimonious. It just it was, what, I guess, inflexible. Or I mean, I'm I'm thinking of the famous thing we all learned in high school. Mama, where's my paw? <laughs> you know, gone to the White House Hall. But he did. He he did apparently father a, a child out of wedlock, and yet he he said that famous phrase, "Tell the truth," and uh, that would be un- incomprehensible today that the politician would do something like that. I think. Yeah, there's this there's this scandal that emerges when he's first running for president. In 1884, worth mentioning that at this point, he's still a bachelor. He is yeah. yet to marry at this point. And it is and he is known, as I said, for this uh, incorruptibility, high moral character, son of a Presbyterian minister who, by all accounts, has sort of lived his life, according to those precepts, absent some pretty aggressive drinking, it mm-hmm. seems like during his days in Buffalo. But this allegation comes forward during the campaign that he has 
fathered a child out of wedlock with a woman in Buffalo several years prior. And uh, he never denies this. He, he never really fully admits to it either, which is more <laughs> a function of kind of the politics of that day. It's it's strange. A lot of people have asked me, well, what was the official response from the Cleveland campaign? And it was the one that you just cited. Tell the truth. OK, <laughs> but what's the what's the truth? You know, <laughs> um, but Cleveland was so the 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 rumors that were spread at the time by Cleveland's sympathists was that actually this woman had been involved with several men at the time, and actually several of them were married. And so Grover may actually be taking a, a moral stand here and, and taking responsibility, even though he wasn't the father. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the research that I've done, that seems improbable. It does seem likely to me that he actually was the father, but can't prove it definitively. There's not a lot of good evidence left on this at this at this point. She, she was... She didn't. She protest that she was pure and she never had lovers or something. It was the truth was somewhere in between, maybe, or I don't know. Well, you know what's difficult. What's so difficult about this, and what has flummoxed a lot of subsequent historians, is that you have to be you have to be very careful when you're reading press accounts of this time because. Contra this notion that we have that modern political journalism is irreparably broken and there were these halcyon days of an objective press, it is clearly the case at many points in American history, and particularly at this one, that there is an aggressively partisan press on both sides, and the amount of things that are just made up out of whole cloth is remarkable. So you sort of have to be carefully taught in terms of how to read any of these press accounts at the time. There is sort of famously, and I deal with this in the book, there is this rumor that has swirled around Grover Cleveland for only about the past decade that he, in fact, had had raped this woman. And this um, has become shorthand for a lot of people. I've found this out since the book has been released because uh, it has been amplified uncritically in places like The Atlantic and The Daily Beast and Salon. It all comes from one book. And that one book uh, got confused on this point, got confused about had to read the history of the day because the basis for that allegation, which seems airtight when you first hear it, is that this this woman, her name was Maria Halpin, made this allegation in an affidavit. It seems like a pretty open and shut case. Uh, But she made this allegation prior to the 1884 election, which raises an interesting question Mm -hmm. if you're thinking through the chronology, which is if there are credible rape allegations against one of the two major parties' presidential candidates in the year 1884, a year prior to a presidential election, how on earth does that person not only get elected – but then stand for the presidency twice thereafter. And if you look at the record, it's very clear that these allegations don't really come back the next couple of times. This seems like an odd thing for the opposition to drop the use of when you've got a weapon that large. And it turns out the reason for this is that this affidavit uh, was real. This affidavit was made public and this affidavit was signed without Maria Halpin ever reading it. And within a few days of its release, she went public and said that she had been tricked into signing it uh, by a friend of hers who said it was actually to help bolster Cleveland. And so she said it it just simply never happened. Every material point of this controversy has been out there. This isn't part of it. But it, that, that was omitted from this book that came out about it 10 years ago, which is yeah. why this all of a sudden has this currency. Well, she wasn't Stormy Daniels, I guess. I guess that's my point. I, I... <laughs> And he reacted differently than Donald Trump. But given that that vulnerability, um, he he married this Frances Folsom, and she was twenty years younger, plus or he, more, yeah, more. Uh, and he he was more, a bachelor uh-huh. till forty two or forty three, and he and he marries. Was that controversial in a way that even today in our permissive or everything's okay society? I can't imagine a person who, first of all, who was a bachelor, given other considerations, and he would be president in the White House. And at 42 or 43, he would bring in a 20-something young girl, you know, as sort of Trudeau did at Canada. I just, it, it <laughs> was there criticism contemporary? And did that channel into his past at all or not? You know, it's funny. There is less connective tissue there than one would think. So the age difference is is even even larger 
Um, he is in his late forties by the time that they get married. She's about 21. And there is this additional wrinkle to it that at least to our modern eyes, but I would assume to their eyes as well, makes it even a little bit ickier, which is that he's known this woman, Frances Folsom, since she was a small child. She is the daughter of his former law partner and best friend who had been killed uh, in a carriage accident in Buffalo, where Cleveland lived during most of his adult life prior to the presidency. Um, and again, this is something that gets a little distorted uh, over the years. There is You sometimes see allegations that he sort of groomed her because she was his ward, and that, that's not quite right. Uh, he was something more like the executor of the family's estate. And in, in fact, she didn't really grow up around him. She grew up for part of the time in Minnesota while he's in Buffalo and ha actually had other fiancés beforehand. But still, none of this negates the sort of essential weirdness that <laughs> you and I both intuit about this story of a man in his late 40s marrying a woman in her early 20s. The strange thing about it is you read the accounts of the time. There is not a lot of public suspicion about this. There is not a lot of opprobrium. There is not a lot of reading this back into the Maria Halpin scandal. Um, her mother was actually quite happy with this arrangement um, and was close friends with Grover Cleveland. And I, I can't tell you exactly why this happened, but I, I can tell you why it wasn't the main focus of the press coverage. And that is simply because the American public was way too obsessed with the bride. Francis Folsom is Jackie Kennedy before Jackie Kennedy. It is is really hard to overstate how much of a public sensation she is. She's very young. She's very beautiful. All the accounts that we have are that she had an extremely winning personality, both with the public uh, and behind closed doors, there's a, a quote that I include in my book from a White House staffer who was there for, I think, four decades through a number of different presidencies, especially because this is an era of pretty high turnover in the White House, who records Francis Cleveland as the most wonderful woman that he ever met in the White House. People love her to, to absurd lengths to the point where, because she's young and beautiful, she, much like Jackie Kennedy, is seen as this sort of arbiter of fashion. And there is a moment where the newspapers, knowing that any story about Francis Folsom will sell newspapers, uh, runs a story claiming that she has abandoned the use of the bustle, which at this moment in American history, pretty widespread uh, piece of fashion for American women. And this causes the American bustle industry to collapse, even <laughs> though the story had just been made up to sell papers. She ends up having to abandon the bustle because this is what's expected of her. But there is no question throughout both of Grover Cleveland's terms, because they end up starting to have children between his first term and the second, and they continue, they end up having five. Um, Grover Cleveland is very much the least popular member of his family with the public. The public is enraptured by the first lady and then enraptured by the Cleveland children. There is an account of them going on a tour to the Western states towards the end of Cleveland's first term, where a newspaper, I believe in Ohio, if I'm recalling this correctly, remarks that there are, there are a thousand men in America just as qualified to be president as Grover Cleveland, but there's nobody who could be first lady like Francis Cleveland. And that is, that is really the to, dominant thread. Is, is, is that a sense that there were, they had six children that Cleveland's did? Five. Five, and they, uh, I know maybe one or two died earlier, but there seems like there were Clevelands everywhere. They, I, I know as a classicist, that uh, British philosopher Philippa Foote wasn't that his granddaughter? I think she was. That's the right. One that, yeah, and she wrote a lot about uh, moral virtue in the 30s and 20s. Um, it's kind of a classical Greek idea that being honest or not telling a lie not only serves society but it's in your interest as well. Kind of Socratic, right? And she's she lived, but they all some of them were. Some of the children, I guess, and even his widow were around during the FDR administration. They, they were kind of a, I don't know if they got the attention, but they seemed to be, for the first half of the 20th century, they, they were in the public sphere to some degree, but people knew of them. Grover, Grover Cleveland marries so late and starts having 
children so late. I mean, he has a, he has a living grandson today who I've emailed with back wow. and forth. He lives up in lives up in New Hampshire. Um, yeah. So of the of the five children, four survived to adulthood. His widow lives until I believe she dies in 1947. Wow. And um, it's interesting. None of them. They all take up respectable stations in life. And Frances Folsom remarries. She is, uh, until Jackie Kennedy, the only first lady to ever remarry. And all of the children, the one son goes off and serves in World War One, ends up becoming a pretty distinguished lawyer in Baltimore with clients that include H.L. Um, Mencken and um, Whitaker Chambers. Uh, another son becomes an actor, goes to Broadway for a little bit, then relocates to New Hampshire. As you mentioned, Philippa Foote is his, his granddaughter. But none of them really try to trade on the family name. Nobody was intent on building a Cleveland dynasty. Nobody ran for office. And in fact, Francis, who was by far the most visible of them as, as an adult and as a woman whose I mean, who's, uh, visage appeared on all kinds of con- products in America. This is how popular she was. She lived a modest enough life that, as I recount in the book, the last time that she visits the White House, and this is in the 1940s, she is seated at a table with then General Eisenhower, who asks her at one point, she having mentioned that she was familiar with the area, where did you live when you were in Washington? He has no idea who he's talking to. Wow. So they, they had sort of receded uh, none of them sought the limelight. And the Clevelands who are alive today are very much in keeping with this. It, it, there's a remarkable sense of, of modesty around the family. There was a remarkable sense of modesty around Grover Cleveland. I mean, one of the reasons that his legacy has suffered is that he was always a little uncomfortable with the idea of writing a memoir. It just seemed a little – for a guy who's whose lineage is really steeped in a kind of New England puritanism – there was something a little gauche, you know, about the idea of calling attention to yourself with a, a memoir. He refers to it as, I don't want to appear wearing a fur coat in July. And that, while very admirable and sort of one of the, the central elements of why Cleveland is a president to be, in my judgment, admired, also no question has hurt his historical legacy. I mean, there's a real lack of primary sources on a lot of this stuff. Didn't take good care of his papers, never wrote a memoir. So it is one of many examples of Cleveland's virtues also being things that over the long term kind of undercut his uh, word that would be foreign to him, but what we would call his presidential legacy. Troy, let me ask you, let's have a a round of (laughs) rapid fire questions. And I I haven't rehearsed this with Troy, so I know it's unfair. So I'm just going to ask you some questions and you give me a short answer. What do you think? What would you consider his greatest uh, achievement while president? Policy issue, uh, executive order, decision, anything? I think his greatest. I think his greatest achievement as president, again, to my point earlier about the negative things sort of mattering, is holding the line on the second term on the issue of gold and silver so, because the, the the populace were were not totally wrong about this. The money supply actually probably could have used some silver, but. Uh, if they had fully had their way and we had had free silver, it probably would have und- upended the American financial system in such a way that I doubt the the following decades look the way they do. It, we really, I think, would have been in terra incognita if he hadn't held the line there. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point. I grew up with a grandmother who was on this forum where I'm speaking, and we all had to memorize the cross of gold speech. <laughs> and she was in the Women's Christian Temperance uh, and won an award for, I guess, reciting it 5,000 times. Wow. But uh, what do you think was his greatest disappointment or failure as a president? Uh, on In his in his judgment or in mine? Yeah, in your judgment. I th- I think the area I think the area where Cleveland is the weakest when you when you look at I write about foreign policy but at the end of the yeah. book um and you do see there's this we don't need to get into the details of it but there is this prolonged diplomatic conflict with Britain over Venezuela and where the mm-hmm. borders should be and they feel like Britain's trying there's a like a nascent land, land grab happening yeah, yeah. the and this is, I think, a place of real weakness in Cleveland and one where Cleveland is sort of 
prefiguring what the Democratic Party is going to become, because you do see a sort of burgeoning Wilsonian understanding of the world, something that is reconcilable with Kellogg-Briand and mm-hmm. things like that. There is this sort of legalistic sense that war is outmoded and that we can all come together under the tribunal of reason and arbitration is going to solve. Utopianism and all that. That's that's right. And uh, he doesn't come in for a ton of criticism for it because it's a relatively small part of mm-hmm. his administration. But I do think there you see the germs of a lot of ideas that would prove to be really toxic as we move into the 20th century. If you look at during his life or afterwards, who who in the political world or any world was his admirer or some a supporter? Was Did he have a strong ally? In the Democratic Party or in journalism, or you mentioned H.L. Mencken, he was. You you point out, I think, at one point that he wasn't as critical as he was of everybody else. Yeah, I start I start the book with this praise yeah. for Cleveland from Mencken because it's so unusual. Because Mencken is so unsparing of every politician. I mean, he he writes in FDR's obituary. He had all the qualities that morons esteem in their <laughs> heroes. <laughs> That's the way that Mencken treats politicians. So yeah, Mencken had a, a special place for him. Um, and Taft admired him. Teddy Roosevelt admired him in many ways. And Wilson, actually, before he makes the turn to progressivism, admired him. Wilson, I was surprised to find this in researching the book. Wilson probably wrote the best scholarly analysis of Cleveland's presidency. And he says in there that Grover Cleveland was probably roughly the kind of man that the founding fathers envisaged Mm. as a president, which is to say he sort of stood outside the system. He didn't see his role as being a partner of the Congress. He saw it as being a representative of the entire American people. And then for all the reasons that we've mentioned earlier, uh, in terms of there just not being a lot to hang his legacy on in terms of a a paper trail, this, this really starts to trail off by the middle of the 20th century. As late as the 1940s, you're still seeing Cleveland show up in the top 10 in rankings of American presidents. And then as the generations pass, it really starts to fade. And and since then, there have not been a lot of people who have been great champions or, or admirers of his. Bill Clinton, apparently, during his second term, had a kind of fondness for Grover Cleveland. The best I can tell is based on a misreading of Grover Cleveland, <laughs> but, but seems to have been as an embattled, all he was seeing in Cleveland was an embattled Democratic president trying to straddle the center. And he thought that there was some connection between them on on that basis. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I know we're getting close to the end, but... You were writing this during the Trump administration, and now we are told that he is going to be the first person that has some chance. I don't know what how good a chance of being the first person since Cleveland to be president and then have a second term not successive on the first. Did that interest in Trump at all affect you, or was there did it help with the book's publicity that? Trump, because you don't really hear Cleveland in the public sphere, uh, public media, but you're starting to hear him always uh, in connection with Trump's gambit right now. Yeah, that that that's right. I mean, I had to laugh the other day. The the Epic Times had a piece making the comparison between the two. First time Grover Cleveland has shown up in a headline in 120 years, and in the headline it says Trump. I forget exactly how it was phrased. 
Trump reignites interest in mostly forgotten President Grover Cleveland. So even when he's in the headlines, it says most mostly forgotten. <laughs> um, you know, it didn't inspire or really inform um, the writing of the book because I started writing this during Trump's first term. So mm -hmm. it wasn't such an immediate prospect. It was kind of a bit of serendipity. It, it has definitely helped with the publicity. And what I tell people who are obviously inclined to, to draw parallels, it's what's most interesting about the situation that Trump finds himself in vis-a-vis -vis Cleveland is how different it is. And, and what I mean by that, it's not really about the differences between the two men. It's about the differences in the American political system, which is to say that Cleveland, after he loses the first time, has a very improbable road to his comeback, which is that it is between those first and second terms that the gold and silver question really starts coming to a boil. And all the energy in the Democratic Party is, a, is athwart him, is on the silver side. And he can't abide this and writes a much publicized letter coming down on the side of gold, which today this would be suicidal. If you want your party's renomination, the last thing you would do is spite your base. Mm -hmm. But in 1892, the party nomination is determined by the party elders. There are no primaries. So it's a totally different universe than now, where if you're Donald Trump, the last thing that Donald Trump is going to do, both as an institutional matter and as we know, as a temperamental matter, is going to suck up to whoever the mandarins are supposed to be in the Republican Party. He's, he's going to go to where his sort of electoral base is. So it is really representative of how much American politics has changed in those 130 mm -hmm. or, or so years that one seeking a presidential restoration in order to do it would have to take almost the exact opposite tack that a Grover Cleveland did. In did Cleveland, when he came, when he campaigned um, for his second, um, excuse me, his third candidacy, did he make do a Trumpian, I was robbed, I won this? It's different. I understand that Trump didn't never win the popular vote, probably. But did, did Cleveland say, I would have been elected before and I was robbed because I won the popular vote and there was electoral college manipulation? He didn't do any of that, did he? Or did he? Uh, no, he he didn't. And and there were plausible allegations, actually, that the 1888 election, the one that he lost, uh, was stolen. Um, there was a lot of electoral skullduggery in those days on both sides. And a lot of it was exposed in the run up to the 1888 election. In fact, by 1892, we get to the secret ballot precisely for this reason, because people were not confident in the outcome of the 1888 election. And some of Cleveland's supporters did claim that the election had been stolen from him. Uh, and he was unwilling to go down that road. So when he was asked what he thought had happened, he said the other party got the most votes. That was the sum total of, of what he said about it. But it was very different in spirit than a, a third Trump candidacy, too, insofar as, you know, there's that acute sense of of loss with Donald Trump, that he was denied something that he thinks he rightly won, that he deserves, he really wants to be in the middle of the fight, uh, where it's been very clear from day one that this is what Donald Trump had in mind. Grover Cleveland leaves office after that defeat and is pretty content to just be an ex-president. For the, for the first couple of years, he says, you know, I think I did a pretty good job. I don't know that there's a whole lot left to be done. And it's only when the administration of Benjamin Harrison in the interim is starting to undo a lot of his legacy. And then he gets spooked by the fact that the Democratic Party is moving in the direction it is on silver, that he feels sort of drawn back in. But I don't think by any means that he left office thinking that agenda item number one is find a way to get back in. The evidence just suggests that the first couple of years, that wasn't that much on his mind. He seems like the only president that has lost the popular vote that didn't feel, that didn't make that argument. I mean, almost every other one. I'm thinking of Al Gore most recently. And oh, that has lost the electoral college. Yeah. yeah. And he'll, he won a narrow victory in the popular vote. He lost the electoral college like Al Gore did, like Hillary Clinton. But and, you know, I had, uh, I had never thought about it in those terms, but I I, I think you're right about that. And that, that yeah. gets at something about him that I, I mentioned at a few points in the book, which is he's a little strange. He's a little strange on several fronts, but he's a little strange in that he is not he's not a born politician. It always sort of feels like he can 
sort of take it or leave it. And he seems pretty satisfied when he's out of office. Part of my argument in this book, Cleveland is is trained as a lawyer uh, and based on his time at the Buffalo Bar, it does really seem like the ambition he probably had from the start and arguably the one that better fitted his talents was to be a judge. That This is a man very much with a judicial temperament who kind of stands uh, at a at an arm's length from politics and tries to figure out the right answer, not try to figure out what factions to manipulate or what log rolling to do. He's a bit like Taft in that sense. And I think that is probably why you don't get that um, fire in the belly immediately upon losing that race in the way that you would have, yeah, with, as you I, say, other people have lost. Yeah, their I, I was just, I was struck reading. I mean, Jackson, Tilden, I think, Gore, Hillary, <laughs> they all, <laughs> that, and they, it was always framed in a crisis of democracy that the popular vote did not right. reflect the electoral college vote, et cetera, et cetera. But he was, um, he was unusual in that, in that sense. Um, final, final uh, question, Troy, when you look back at uh, Cleveland today, and you look at you you made this parallel a lot about his character and that we don't see people like that anymore did you come down on in a modern sense about the difference between because one of the issues you raise is this that we talked about earlier the president and the presidency yeah but and you mentioned that you made a distinction between the more modern presidency is so much more powerful and so much more omnipotent and ubiquitous in our lives. It's not quite the same, but I think a lot of people with Trump revisited that question. In other words, as I look at the primary today with DeSantis, I just gave a talk. I won't mention the venue, but I asked people in the, in, in the audience, how many of you like the pro or did not like the Trump presidency? Almost everybody raised their hand. And then I said, how many of you, apparently you're conservative, would like to see Donald Trump repeat that again or DeSantis. And at this particular moment, it can change tomorrow. I right. remind all of our listeners, we're just, I don't, we can't go by weekly, but uh, polls or sentiments that are trickle, but almost everybody said they liked the, the presidency of Donald Trump between 2017 and 21, but they did not want him to run again. And they didn't like him personally. Right. And that, that really, and then I think if people, had asked, do you like Jerry Ford and do you like Jimmy Carter? Maybe more more Republicans, I think, and Democrats. Democrats would have said Jerry Jerry Ford was a nice guy, and most Republicans would have said, you know, I didn't like right. Carter's president. He's not a bad man. He's a moral man. But they would have each said that their presidencies were failures. How do you what do you what do you get any sense from reading about Cleveland? I know that you, the situations are very different. How we how we answer that question? How can a person who is by classical moral standards maybe is found wanting? How can that person have a more successful presidency than somebody is that is a far more traditionally moral person? And what does that say about us? Or what does it say about the job? Or, or or what, how we define morality? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an excellent question, and the, and the best answer that I can offer to it is that I think it is I think it is very much a sliding scale. I mean, I, I say late in the book that you know it is I think foolhardy and unrealistic to imagine that every American president is going to be a sort of reservoir of of moral probity, and in, and indeed our system is not designed that way, right? The founding fathers are explicit about this, that they're not expecting mm -hmm. every president to be an angel. Uh, in addition to that, um, I think one can make a pretty good case, you know, as I suggested earlier, with the fact that Cleveland's sense of principle oftentimes gets him in political trouble, that the exigencies, practical and moral, involved in, in politics in general, but particularly in the presidency, sometimes require a different standard, right? That there, there are times where what you want out of the president of the United States when they are looking towards the long-term interest of the country, you know, might be different than what you want from your your local alderman or what you would want 
from your neighbor. So I, I don't by any means imagine, and I'm pretty explicit about this towards the end of the book, that the things that make Cleveland distinctive are the prerequisites that we should be looking for absolutely yeah. in in any in anybody who is going to be president of the United States. We just have too many counterexamples. Yeah, and I, I think of Jimmy. He remind me of uh, he from your account and what I little I had known about him prior. It reminded me in some way of Jimmy Carter, although Jimmy Carter had a mean streak that I don't think Cleveland did to the same degree. But he he was as politically naive and he was a little bit sanctimonious. But there not. are there are definitely similarities. I mean, I raise at one point in the book yeah. where Cleveland is going through these these vetoes, these pe- pension cases, and he is inspecting each one of them personally. And I make the comparison to Jimmy Carter managing yeah, yes. tennis courts at, at the White House, you know. Um, I I think one can find a lot more rewarding um, actions, a lot more rewarding decisions in the Cleveland administration than the Carter administration. But I do think that the comparison is apt in many many ways. And, you know, I I think a lot of this is downstream from – I think one of the reasons it's hard for Americans to judge this accurately is because we are a little spoiled by the example of Abraham Lincoln. And to a certain extent, George Washington, because Lincoln operates at such an intersection of there is such deep moral thought going into what he's doing. But there is also so much canny political strategizing. You know, the, the idea of prudence, right? Of him trying to fit the ends to the means. And yeah. Lincoln is so good at it. And he's one of the few American presidents that most of us know more about. That I mean, boy, that is a hard example for almost anybody to live up to. And but, almost, he was the only president that could suspend habeas corpus and feel so sad about it. <laughs> right, right. There, there's real. There is a lot. To, there is a lot to that. There is a yeah, lot. To there that. is. He, he was a master politician, but he was also, as you say, moral. Well, this has been fascinating. Our guest today has been Troy Sinek. I urge you all to buy this book. It's a wonderfully written book. I haven't had a chance to emphasize. Troy was not just a speechwriter, but he's an accomplished historian and journalist and English prose style. So a man of iron, the turbulent life and improbable presidency of Grover Cleveland. It's available at Amazon from, and in Threshold Books. It's in bookstores. And it's been a fascinating hour, Troy. I want to thank you for visiting us. Thank you, Victor. A delight as always. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. It's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey. Thank you.